My name is Dean. If today is uh, day number one for you uh, as our guest, we're thrilled that you are with us. Um, we are in the middle of a series called Labels. Just a couple things, though, before we jump into our text um, for today in Luke chapter 13. You can go ahead if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to go ahead and start turning over there. Great. Next Sunday, just by way of reminder, is an all-in Sunday for us, which means we won't have uh, LifePoint kids. We won't have crew next Sunday, which is K through 5th. They'll be worshiping um, in here with us. Always great fun days. We'll have a worship choir uh, next week that'll be with us um, on the 3rd. So I hope you'll take the opportunity to come. As the kids say, it's going to be lit. So I hope that you will, uh, I hope that you will be here uh, with us next Sunday. Uh, the second thing, just a, a word this week about uh, the Supreme Court ruling. I know we talked about this six or eight weeks ago, um, but we believe all the scriptures and the parts that teach that life begins at conception. We see scripture that way. So we, um, as a church, are grateful for the ruling uh, of the Supreme Court uh, this week. Um, you're going to face a cultural narrative uh, this week that says that um, you are either pro-life or you are pro-women. And like I said to you six weeks ago, uh, I believe that to be a false narrative. Uh, God is both. God is the creator. He is the author of the lives of both. And so God is for uh, is for both. And so in the future, we're going to continue to do the things that we're already doing, trying to uh, do whatever we can to support fostering families, trying to support adoptive families in whatever ways uh, that we can. We're going to continue to resource uh, pregnancy resource centers uh, here in Delaware County and in uh, Franklin County to do both of those things. We have a post-abortive healing uh, life group that's meeting uh, right now. We'll continue to do anything uh, and everything. Uh, that we can, and I'm, I know stories are complicated, uh, right? And so if this has stirred up some spiritual needs um, in you, I want you to know we're going to have folks who are available in the Next Steps room for prayer uh, after the service uh, today if you'd like to stop by there and have somebody uh, pray with you. Uh, specifically. So jumping back into Luke 13, I don't think it's any um, coincidence where we are uh, in the, uh, the story of Luke uh, this week. I'm going to guess that you have not heard a bunch of sermons out of Luke chapter 13. It's a difficult text, uh, not only to interpret, but just to kind of work, uh, to kind of work your way through. And in this series called Labels, the reason that we're doing it, we say that we label ourselves sometimes, sometimes other people label us, and we say that the gospel is calling us to a life that is above the labels, the labels we attach to our own hearts and the labels that other people, the categories that they put us into. And Luke highlights folks who felt that way, who felt isolated, too far from God, um, too, too prodigal maybe that they could ever come uh, to him. And so today we want to push back against a very specific label. And um, if I could capture it in a word, it would be the word uh, better. You know, we live in a culture, right, that um, everybody's got a hot mic because of social media, right? Um, you can sit from the comfort of your own home and say anything you want, whenever you want, stick it out there, uh, drop the Twitter bomb anytime uh, that you want to be the kind of gotcha person or you, you know, snag somebody with the great line, you know. We, um, I, I, Pastor Jeff, he was on our team recently retired. He always he called it keyboard courage, right? That it's easy to sit behind a keyboard and, and, and much more difficult in person uh, to talk through things and issues and the complications that come with life and do that one-on-one. -on -one. Well, while they didn't have Twitter in Jesus's day, this was exactly his culture. They lived in a world of, uh, of public debate, of a lot of back and forth, and certainly Jesus faced this 
um, all the time uh, with people trying to catch him, people trying to, uh, people trying to trap him in the right spot and space. And so that's the story in Luke chapter 13 as we begin uh, in verse, uh, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled uh, with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell, uh, and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So people come to Jesus and they present him uh, with a question. I'm gonna give them a name uh, today. Um, I'm gonna call them the trapper keepers. Does anybody else remember the greatest binder ever uh, invented, right? Um, th there were these people who came and they kept trying to trap Jesus. So they come to Jesus in a public forum and they throw out um, cultural happenings, right? This is, this would have been the, the trending topic um, on every news platform in Jesus's day. There was an insurrection in Galilee. There was a group of people that were uh, politically led in nature called the Zealots, and they wanted to overthrow Rome. Rome had occupied Israel, occupied Jerusalem, and so they kind of had an uprising of these Zealots. And so Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, he sends a Roman legion in, catches whom he believes to be some of these Zealots in the temple. They murder them in the temple, cut their throats, let them bleed out. They take their blood, they mix it with the blood of the Hebrew sacrifices, and then the Roman soldiers pour that all over the altar, defiling the temple. The, the people hated, they hated Pilate um, for what he had done, but they, they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop the power, right, the army of Rome. And so the trap is this. They bring this to Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, what do you, what do you think? Because if Jesus sides with the zealots, Rome will kill him. If he sides with Rome, the zealots will kill him. So they said, what, what do you think, Jesus? And Jesus looks at them and he says, what do you think, you're better than they were? You think you're better than the people who were, who were killed in this, in this insurrection? He says, no, you need to repent. He says, and, and then Jesus brings this up. He brings up another local tragedy. The Tower of Siloam had fell. I'll show you behind me some of the archeological ruins in Jerusalem uh, that have been discovered, the Pool of Siloam. In the background, you're gonna see some trees. That are, that's an area that's yet to be excavated where this Tower of Siloam, which once would have stood at the corner of two walls. Probably during an earthquake, this tower fell. There were 18 people who were killed in this, in this local tragedy. And so Jesus says, what well, do you think you were better? You think you're better than these people? Now, as we talk about what Jesus thinks, actually, before we talk about what Jesus thinks about tragedy, let's talk about the ways that we as human beings look at tragedy. First is probably um, what I would call the, the, the religious view, right? Where tragedy is tied to your, uh, your morality. And that's really the angle that Jesus first, um, what he first addresses here. And it's this idea that if you're a good person, you get a good life. If you live a good life, you'll have a good life. The better you are, the more God answers your prayers. That's, that's the idea. So if you have a good family, it's because you're a better parent. 
If you have a good marriage, it's because you're a better spouse. If you have a good successful career, it's because you're a better employee. You see the label better, better, better. The problem, the fundamental miss in that theory, in that idea, in that way of thinking is what? What all works good, I mean, as long as things are going good, it's great. But when something goes wrong, then that theory's flipped. And then it becomes your fault, not just that things are right, but it becomes your fault when things, when things go wrong, that you're not good enough, you're not moral enough, you're not keeping the rules well enough. And so there's a fundamental logic that breaks down there. And so Jesus would say, what, you think you're better? So who do you blame in a scenario like that? Well, the only people you can blame are the people who are laying underneath the rubble, right? Of that tower. That's, that tends to be how religious people see things. Now, the second way that we look at tragedy is kind of just the opposite of that. It's not religious, but it's irreligion, right? And here, tragedy is not so much tied to your morality as it is, it's just misery. Right? This is the idea that either God is distant, God is mean, but probably the most prevalent in our culture is just that God doesn't exist. God cannot exist because bad things happen or because tragedy um, exists. Those two things cannot, cannot coincide. And I'll tell you, this view, um, it, it is utterly hopeless. It's despairing, it's miserable. It's, listen, you just gotta take a tough pill because sometimes, Life's tough, you just toughen up. I remember um, when our youngest, my youngest daughter, Sylvia, when she was three or four years old, I uh, came home one day and she said, hey dad, I learned a new song. I said, okay. She said, uh, when you're sitting on the john and the toilet paper's gone, be a man, use your hand. <laughs> Very impressed as a parent. I said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking preacher's kid, right? Yeah, the preacher's daughter, like that's probably. And I said, honey, where did you learn? I mean, who would have taught my innocent little daughter? Who would I said, where did you learn? It was our life group leader's kids. <laughs> that's what's wrong with the preacher's kids. It's the life group leader's kids jack them up, right? But, but that's kind of the mentality of this idea. When tough things happen, it's like, just, you know, be a man. That's all, that's all you can, you just gotta man up and, and, and be tough. And it's just, utter, it's just utter despair. And I think what Jesus is trying to point out here is that when difficult things come to our lives, it's neither of those. It's not, it's not religion or irreligion. Both of the, the ends of both of those things are really hopeless. Rather, rather, tragedy, Jesus sees tragedy through the lens of hope. It's very different. Look at what he says, then in um, coming back to verse five, he reiterates this idea. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus says, here's the idea. You need to repent. Well, Jesus, why do these things happen? Well, this happened, you need to repent. You and I tend to look at repentance, like it's something that we do whenever, um, whenever we do things wrong. Right? That's when you need to repent. Repentance is just a, it's a big Bible word, but it's a very simple, it just means you need to turn your heart God's direction, square up with him, right? And that you are in right relationship with God. 
That's, that's really all it means. And we tend to think, well, yeah, I need to repent whenever I, I lie or cheat or steal or do, and you do, but that's not the only time that you need to repent. That we need to live in this active mode of repentance. We don't need to look at our relationship with God solely through the lens of, of rules. Um, our student pastor up at the Delaware campus, uh, Braden, um, he was talking to students uh, about the Ten Commandments. And so with parental permission, uh, he wanted to do a couple of student interviews. So he reached out to one of our parents to see if he could interview their 11-year-old daughter about the Ten Commandments. And so uh, they said, yes, and we'll, I'm not gonna, well, I won't say her name, we'll call her Chloe, okay? So he's talking to 11-year-old Chloe and he says, Chloe, um, on a scale of one to 10, how bad of a sin is lying? She said, oh, that's an eight. He's like, oh, okay, eight, wow, all right. What about, um, what about adultery? Do you, do you know what adultery is? And she says, yeah, I think that's when you're married to somebody, but you, you cheat on the person um, that, you're, that you're married to. And he said, yeah, and she said, but I'm not married. So she's like, I really don't know like what that's like. He said, well, let me, let me say it to you this way, Chloe. What if you had a boyfriend and your boyfriend kissed another girl? And she quickly responded. She said, well, that would be an 11. He's like, wow, an 11. She said, yes, because that sin would then lead to murder. So that would lead to another. <laughs> May want to rethink that, fellas, before you ask Chloe out, right? <laughs> and we tend to think that's when I need to repent, right? When I break a commandment, when I, when I do something wrong because this one is worse than this one. And, and listen, uh, breaking God's commandments have different levels of consequence in our lives, but the essence uh, of sin is much more than breaking the commandments. The essence of sin is pride, and it comes down to mine and your self-sufficiency that we think that the reason our lives are better are because we're smarter, we're more savvy, we're more knowledgeable, and we keep the commandments, we're more moral, and therefore, God, the essence of sin is so much more than the commandments. The essence of sin is pride. It's that we live in self-sufficiency, that we don't think that we need God, or that we live like we don't uh, in um, uh, active atheism, right? We, well, you may wouldn't, you would never say, I don't believe in God, but you live like he doesn't exist because you think you've got enough, you know enough, you have enough. You see the danger? I would say to you that the, the biggest problem in Delaware County is not how we break the Ten Commandments, but it's how we think we keep them. And the essence of that pride will boil up in us until we start to wear that label that we're just better. So how are you gonna, how are you gonna fight? How are you gonna fight against that? Here's what the next uh, verse says, verse Six, it says, and he, he, Jesus, he leads into this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it um, and, he found, uh, and he found none. So Jesus is gonna teach us that repentance is actually a good thing, that repentance is like fruit. He tells a story, he says, there's a guy who has a vineyard and in his vineyard, he's got fig trees and he comes along and the rest of the parable is that the guy looks at one of his fig trees and it hasn't produced figs for three years. 
planted it, tends it, keeps it, does everything he can do. And so he goes to the vineyard keeper, the guy who's doing all of the work um, to take care of all the plants. He says, listen, that tree gotta go. You gotta get rid of it. But the, the vineyard keeper says, let me get one more year. I just need one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll, um, I'll mulch around it. I'll put manure around it. I'll take good care. Let's give it one more shot. And so the vineyard owner relents. He says, okay, we'll give it one more year. We will grace the tree to do what it was designed to do to bear fruit. Jesus says that repentance in our lives, turning God's direction, living squared up on him, surrendering, submitting our lives to him, that that is like sweet fruit in our lives. And I would just say to you, think about it for a minute. We, we don't do this often enough, but think and reflect about all the good things that God has given you, all of the things that he has done for you. Life, health, and family, in resources. Just reflect for a second on everything. Is it perfect? No. No, 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 it's not, not perfect. But think of the mountain of good that he has given you. Think about how he's, he's your, little, your little tree, your little life. He's, he's dug around it, right? He's, he's given you um, opportunities. He's, he's put manure around um, you know, your, your, your life, your opportunities to hear God's word. This sermon is like manure, right? For, no, no jokes, please. Um, he's given you all these things. He's invested in you in a number of ways. He's the giver of good gifts. And you know what you and I tend to do? We tend to focus on the one thing that's wrong in the middle of a world of right. And that will inhibit us from bearing fruit. We'll pick out the one thing that's just a little off and that thing, that one thing that's off will become our focus. The, the way this typically works is that people say uh, things like, well, when somebody suffers, when somebody goes through something difficult or something painful, that's gonna cause them to doubt their faith. And because it would cause them to doubt, well, therefore God doesn't exist because he doesn't answer. You know what I would say in what, what's getting to be almost 30 years of ministry for me, not quite, but rolling up on 30 years. And I'm, I'm speaking generally, not specifically here, but generally speaking, I have not found that to be the case. Rather, I find that when people go through difficult things, I find in my own life, when I go through difficult things, I tend to lean into my relationship with God more than leaning out of my relationship with God. I find it to be just the opposite. So who purports that idea? I would say the philosophical elites, right? Uh, the teachers of philosophy and education and things like that have have led us to a place where they've kind of outsmarted the reality, because if that were true, right? If, if when people go through the most difficult situations in their lives, they call it quits with faith. That would mean that the poorest countries of the world, the most difficult, the, where the situations are tough, that the poorest countries of the world should be thoroughgoing atheists. And the wealthiest countries of the world should be, spiritually speaking, the strongest countries in the world, right? If that were true. And it's actually the exact opposite. That's true. 
that the people who go through the most difficult things in the world, the countries where situations are incredibly difficult tend to be more spiritual and the countries that tend to, to be more affluent are less. Why? Why is that? It's because the reality, because you and I wear the better label and because we think that we're better people, we deserve better treatment. If we deserve better treatment, then what happens is that it's not just, um, it's not pain, suffering, and difficulty that throw us off track. It's, it's the fear of pain, suffering. It's, it's the potential that something could go wrong that tends to throw us off track. So when we see it in somebody else's life, we tend to think, well, I could never endure something like that. One of uh, American's theologians in the last century uh, was a guy named Thomas Merton. And um, he wrote a good book called Seven Story Mountain. And in the book, here's one of the quotes. He says, the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer. Because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. The one who does the most to avoid suffering in the end is the one who suffers the most. So it's interesting, and I think it's noteworthy that Jesus in this text is not talking to the people who have family members who are under the rubble. Jesus isn't looking at them and saying, hey, you need to, you just need to repent, right? You need to take a tough pill. You need to, he's not addressing them. He's addressing the trapper keepers. He's addressing the people whose lives are pretty smooth. They're in a pretty good season. Things are going pretty good for them. And what he's saying to those people is you better repent. You better consistently turn your heart to God's direction. You better consistently remind yourself of all the good things that God has given you and the good things that God has done for you. And don't allow your heart to get focused on the one little thing that is wrong in your life or the one thing that could be wrong in your life. Because in focusing on that, what you're gonna find is that there's just more suffering. And the more you look for suffering, the more you're gonna find suffering. So how do we avoid that? How do we avoid becoming trapper keeper. You invest your life and you invest your heart in the gospel. This idea that we are broken and God is beautiful. That we are utterly foundationally off kilter, broken by sin, born into the world that way, flawed, so to speak, that we don't see the world. We only see the world from, from our perspective, from the things um, that, that help us, make us, mold us, shape us, uh, instead of seeing it from God's perspective, that we are fundamentally flawed. We are broken, but that God is incredibly that God would send his one and only son to come into the world, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, to take your place in my place, your cat of nine tails across his back, mine as well. The spikes in his hands and feet, yours, mine as well. That he substituted himself in love for us. You say, well, how does, that, how does that help me, Dean? Because if he was willing to do that for you, if he was willing to substitute himself for you, would he ever leave you in the middle of a difficult moment, in the middle of a crisis moment? 
No, he would come and he would be with you and he would walk with you. If you find yourself in that, in that moment um, today, if the, you know, maybe you just had an eight and a half on the Richter scale hit your marriage. Maybe, um, maybe the terra firma has become terra shaka underneath your relationship um, with your kids. Maybe you've had a life quake seismic activity, right, in your financial life. If he was willing to die for you, there is nothing that he would not do. Give you his presence, give you himself and be with you in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of crisis. But more so for those of us who are in the middle of a good stretch, that things are going well, more so for us that we are living in a mode of repentance. Here's the heart of Jesus. It says, here's how he ends Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 13. It's a verse that'll be familiar um, to some, uh, maybe brand new to others. He says this, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone the, stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you, and you would not. Jesus looks at the city of Jerusalem and this includes his murderers. This includes the schemers who are trying to, in the background, put together a trial. For, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you and not just gathered you, but guarded you like a hen does her chicks, like she hides them underneath um, her wings. He says, I would have done this for you. This is why I came for you, but you would not. So the question today is, would you? Will you? Will you receive from him, this incredible love, this incredible sacrifice, this incredible gift. Will you see yourself the way that God sees yourself? Yes, broken, but willing to sacrifice, substitute himself for you because he is so beautiful. And are you willing to submit your life to him in repentance? And listen, don't buy into this reality. I love what um, Emily said right off the top of the service today, that God doesn't promise us a perfect, easy life. And you see it in his son, right? Jesus simultaneously lives the most morally pure life ever and the most excruciatingly painful life ever. Salvation Christianity is no guarantee of comfortable circumstances. However, however, it is a guarantee of a personal relationship with God that will bless us to the degree that as we repent, God will change us with the promise that we will eternally be with Him. Maybe this is, uh, maybe this is the best way that I can say it to you. Um, this is the audience participation part, right? You with me, All right? Um, how many of you want, by show of hands, want to go to heaven when you die, All right? Look around the room, almost 100%. The rest of you, I don't know where you want to go. Like, <laughs> I don't know. All of us, and now, not a show of hands, but if I were to say to you, okay, okay, you want to go, we could arrange it, right? We could arrange it right now. You ready? And I think there would be hesitation in a lot of us. 
well, Dean, there's some things I want to do. There's some things I want to see. There's some... And sometimes I think that Jesus, for a lot of us who are in a pretty comfortable circle, I think, for, I think Jesus is more of our comfort, knowing that there's, you know, pie in the sky by and by. If anything ever happens, I'm good. I think Jesus is more of our comfort than he is our hope. What do you do? You repent. Turn your heart, turn your life God's direction. And today we get to experience the public repentance in both of our services uh, today of people going public with their faith, of saying, that's what I've done. I've turned my heart God's direction because I'm broken, he's beautiful, he's filled my life, he's changing me, not perfect going into the water, not perfect coming out of the water, but saying, I'm his and he's mine. We'll experience people going public today, some who came to Christ in the context of family discipleship, some who came to Christ in the context of our ministries here at LifePoint, some came uh, to Christ as, uh, as children, some as students, some as adults, some in camp environments. Um, the, the span in ages uh, today from the youngest to the oldest person who's going public is about 62 years of people who are going public with their faith today, but all of them saying, that I've turned my heart God's direction, squared up with him, receiving what I need from him to experience abundant life. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful, so grateful for you. And God, I pray that you will forgive us, forgive me whenever, um, God, my heart is turned in a direction where it's, um, all about me, and I get so focused on things, God, that don't matter eternally. And God, this morning is such a good reminder as we see people go public, as we worship alongside them, that you are changing us, that you are making us, you are moving us from brokenness to beauty. Thank you for your love that we experience in the cross. Thank you for the power to change that we experience in the resurrection. It's in your name we pray, amen.